This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to legendary swim coach, Bob Bowman. Bowman is currently the head swimming coach at Arizona State, previously held the same position at Michigan, but what he's best known for started during his time at the North Baltimore Aquatic Club when he formed a bond with a young swimmer named Michael Phelps. Bowman coached Phelps from the time he was a kid throughout his entire career by his side for each of his record-setting 23 gold medals. The two formed a relationship that goes well beyond the water. When I talked to him in May, he was even quarantining with the Phelps family, which is lucky for them because they get to enjoy the benefits of Bowman's other passion, which is cooking. We get into his love of Ina Garden, food Twitter, the one dish he's scared to even attempt, and much more. Since we spoke, Bowman took a huge and unprecedented step with his program at Arizona State, preemptively preserving every athlete's eligibility by redshirting the entire program in the midst of the uncertainty caused by the pandemic. Here's my conversation with Bob Bowman. at the beginning because as someone you know this that I did not grow up a swimmer I um (laughs) I can flail about and not drown but that's that's the extent of my swimming experience but it's certainly something that I had friends who got really into it as kids and it just becomes a lifestyle how did you get into swimming as a kid we lived in a neighborhood that had a summer pool and that's just what kids did in the summer you just went to the pool and you know hung out every day and played and they had a swim team and that's how I got into it. I, I think I was 11 when I first started. Yeah. Were you playing other sports? Like, was it something that immediately you stuck? Like, this was a thing you loved? Oh, no. I was playing, you know, football, baseball, soccer. And swimming was just an additional one, which was fun. And I really liked it. But uh, it didn't really stick out to me, like, above any of the others at that time. But I kind of grew to like it a lot more, obviously. How does it get from that point to swimming in college? <laughs> that's a good question it's like my summer well, hobby <laughs> yeah I, I went I joined a year-round team after maybe two years of just swimming in the summer so then it got more serious and at that point I had to decide you know there's only so much time so I eventually got down to football and swimming and then it was just swimming so you know from there and high by the time I got to probably high school I was pretty serious about the swimming so it was fairly easy to make the decision to do it in college. You're obviously coaching college swimming now, and you've been around it for so much of your career. How different was it back when you were a swimmer? Well, it's hard to know because I wasn't really coaching, you know. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think the sport itself is fairly similar. Like, I mean, you know, the way that we go about it, the meets and things, they're kind of similar. I think the experience being with the team, working together, going, traveling to the meets and stuff like that, that's fairly similar. You know, now on the coaching side of things, the rules and all this other stuff that comes with it, it's pretty different. 
So at what point did you decide that you wanted to go into coaching? Actually, I swam the first three years in college. And I knew after three years that my personal swimming was done. Like I was kind of over it for myself, but it wasn't because I didn't like swimming. It's mainly because I didn't feel like I was improving. And when I look back on that, I think it's because I always thought about my swimming like a coach would. I was constantly coaching myself, very hard on myself, analyzing everything to the point where I probably had paralysis by analysis. Couldn't do anything because I was thinking about it so much. So after my third year, I started coaching an age group team in Tallahassee and absolutely loved it. I was getting a degree in developmental psychology. I really liked that aspect and that fit right into coaching. So from there, it was a pretty easy transition for me to want to keep doing it. I absolutely loved that. And I continued that through my senior year and then actually just got a full-time coaching job right out of college and kept going. I wanted to ask about your background in psychology because obviously there are certain sports that are very interesting in terms of like the mind, but swimming where you're doing the same thing every single day and it's this black line is the only thing that you see and you're in your brain the whole time. It must be such a fascinating sport from that perspective. Well, yeah. And the higher up you go, the more mental it becomes, right? So I would say when you start swimming, really any sport, but particularly swimming, it's about 90% physical and 10% mental. By the time you get to the top of your sport, it's the other way around. It's 90% mental and 10% physical. So I, I think that it plays a huge role in that. How have you used that as your coaching? I mean, are you having conversations about that or are you just building it into the way that you coach your swimmers? We're always having conversations about stuff. And even now, since COVID, I've actually just like been doing like a self-taught course in, well, emotional intelligence more than anything else. But I feel like that's such an important part. And what we did after everything was shut down was my assistant, Rachel Stratton Mills and I, we just decided it was kind of logistically impossible for us to like do individual kind of monitoring of every kid on the team. So we split it in half and I took the men, she took the women. And on Monday, the men are going to have a team meeting where we discuss Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, which I made all of them read. Right. So we're going to have a talk about vulnerability and shame. How about that? It's not your normal men's team conversation, but I think it's so important. Right. Like I'm reading a great book now called Permission to Feel by uh, Mark Brackett. He heads up the Emotional Intelligence Center at Yale. So I've been trying to work on that a little bit because I feel like what I see in our college people today is they're not really equipped to handle adversity that well. Right. They've been protected. People have been making the path clear for them pretty much their whole lives. And then we get here and it's like, no, you got to deal with this yourself. So we're trying to give them some tools to navigate all that. How did you end up in Baltimore? Wow, that's a convoluted story, but I'll give you the short answer, right? I kind of approached my coaching career maybe like a football coach would, right? You know how they move around like every year, you know, to different programs as their assistants and they kind of learn something at each place. I did pretty much the same thing. So I started my career in Cincinnati out of college at an age group team. I went from there to Las Vegas. I went from there to Birmingham, Alabama, eventually Napa, California. And then through sort of just a, a kind of a random occurrence, I got in contact with Murray Stevens, who was coaching North Baltimore Aquatic Club, and I ended up there. That was probably a you know 10-year process until I got to Baltimore. But I knew that once I was there, that was really the kind of coaching I wanted to do. The club had a long history of, of performance. We were doing a lot of things that were very different from most clubs in that we owned our own pool. We ran the whole business. So it was a 
kind of a great place to work and be. I'm sure you've told the story a million times. When did you first meet Michael Phelps? I first saw him when we were, you know, working at Meadowbrook Pool in Baltimore. And I was actually coaching his older sister, Whitney. But Michael was in a group that I, you know, younger group, so I wasn't coaching him. He would spend, like I did when I was a kid, he would spend all day at Meadowbrook playing around. So mom would drop Whitney and Michael off for practice. Whitney would practice. Michael would, I don't know what he'd do, get into trouble probably. And then he would swim all day with the kids at the pool. And then he would have a practice at night and Debbie would come pick everybody up and take them home. That's how I first saw him. And the thing that really struck me about him was he was incredibly competitive. Like, I remember watching him play wall ball, and he would get so upset if he lost. Like, could not, like, a full-on meltdown if he lost the game. So I was like, wow, this kid's pretty competitive. Then I saw him in a meet, and he definitely showed that in the meets. And it was about a year later that I actually started coaching him. Kind of randomly, the groups got reorganized, and he was in my group. What about from like a raw talent perspective? Like, could you see the swimmer that he could potentially be? No, you could totally see he was going to be a great swimmer, right? He was built for it. Big hands and feet, incredible flexibility. Michael had a lot of physical tools. You could see that he was made for swimming. If you know what a good swimmer looks like, he looks like all of those things. What is it like to coach someone on that type of trajectory? Is there pressure? There was no pressure in the beginning. And I think that was good because... The way that things were organized, I wasn't even the head coach of the team at that time. You know, I, I, I was probably moving in that direction. I didn't really know that I would coach Michael. You know, when I kind of got there, I was thinking about maybe doing something else besides coaching. I don't know. I was maybe go to school or something like that. So I was coaching him, but I had a lot of freedom because it wasn't like, wow, this is my chance. It was like, this kid's really good and I'm going to give him the best chance he can to succeed. And he doesn't have to like me. And we're going to be together a couple of years, but I'm going to teach him how to do the strokes and then probably pass them on to somebody else. So there really wasn't a lot of pressure in the early days. I think it was good for both of us. When did that change? It changed when Michael was about, well, he, you know, when he was 11 and 12, I was coaching him and he was just a hotshot age group kid and everybody knew he was good, but it wasn't like, oh, wow, he's going to be the best ever. When he was a 13, he had started to really make some strides and it, you knew he was going to be something special. And there came a time when I was actually offered a job in Atlanta with this really big swim club, which was actually like my dream job my whole life. I grew up swimming at that pool. And Murray, who was running our club at the time, said, you know, if you stay here, you'll be Michael's coach for the duration. And I was like, okay, here I am. <laughs> Because I knew at that point, it was kind of like, I could do that. That'd be my trade-off. I'll take that one. So that's when it, we knew that we were going to be together, at least through his high school years and maybe beyond. So after 2004 Olympics, you go to Michigan. And I wonder what was different about that and also that phase of Michael's career coming off of that type of success. What changes during that stretch between 04 and 08? Well, it was a huge change, but it was a perfect change for him because he would have been going to college anyway, right, at that time. So he got to have that experience, kind of, like he didn't, probably wasn't that big on the class part of it, but <laughs> he definitely got the experience. But what he got was a very intense training environment, much more so than in Baltimore. I would say that at that point, we had the best training group probably ever assembled in swimming. There were 10 Olympians. And every day somebody was challenging him and he was sort of, you know, he relished that. So I think it was very good for him. 
What about for you at that point, going into a college environment? You know, it was great. And it was kind of like, if I knew then what I knew now, it would have been a lot better. Because <laughs> I didn't know anything about college coaching, right? And I had actually turned the job down. Like they had called and said, we'd like to talk to you about this job. And I said, well, thank you. But I have a great job here in Baltimore. And, you know, the Olympics are coming up in 2004. So no thanks. And then <laughs> I remember the assistant AD called again. And again, I politely declined. I said, I don't really have a resume and I'm not really looking, but thanks. And finally they called and they said, we've scheduled your interview for next Wednesday. Plane will pick you up at this time. And I said, well, Bill Martin, who was the AD at the time, was president of the USOC. And I was like, maybe he'll help us out in Athens. So I will go as a courtesy. And when I got there, I absolutely loved it and took the job, right? So it was kind of like not this thing where I was like seeking them out. It just kind of happened. And it was wonderful. I, I absolutely loved it and still have the just greatest respect for Michigan. It's an amazing place. I know that one thing that everyone who goes through Michigan athletics talks about is Greg Harden. Tom Brady has credited a ton of his career to him. He is just insanely good at connecting with athletes and getting their minds right. So what was that experience like for you to work with him? Well, it was fantastic. Not only was he just there in counseling, he was my sport administrator. Greg was my boss. And that's probably why I took the job. I mean, that was one of the big parts of it. It's like, I could totally work with this guy and uh, we're still you know, in contact today, but he has an amazing way of connecting with these college kids and, and with me, he was my therapist more than he was my boss, right? I loved the sessions we'd have, like we'd have, you know, our, our monthly or weekly, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, depending on what the stress level was meetings were just, I'd learned a ton about myself and about just life in general, but he is so good at communicating those things to those younger guys and getting them to grow up, essentially. You know, he's, he's amazing. You know, you mentioned earlier that there wasn't pressure early in Michael's career and your relationship with him. The most possible pressure in the world is 2008 and Beijing and trying to be perfect. What was that experience like? There was definitely pressure for that. I think looking afterwards, I realized how much stress it was. Like when you're kind of getting ready, it's just like every day you're focused on this step. So, you know, my job was to have him go to Beijing and feel 100% prepared, right? So that's what I focused on every day. There was some aspect of the training of this stroke, of this event, of the program that we were working on. So in the lead up, whereas you, you knew there was pressure, right? But he was also at his peak, right? He was meeting every expectation. So there really wasn't negative pressure. There was just a lot of excitement about it. And when we got there, it just kind of flowed through that week. He was ready. But it was crazy. It was crazy. Like, come on. When you sit, I remember the, so Beijing, you, you know, we had the press conference before the meet, which was like, you can't imagine that many people in a room, right? Cameras. So then we're, we're both like, okay, geez, this is like, a big deal, right? So then we do the whole thing. And then the one after was even bigger. That was like insane. So yeah, it was a lot of attention. When the famous relay is happening, is it a blur or is it moving in slow motion? Like what is that like to watch happen in real life? It was, well, for most of it, I was just like, wow, we didn't even get started. It's already over. Right? It was like, seriously, I was like, 
well, seven's not too bad. I remember thinking to myself, well, seven will be okay. And because it was so, you know, we were so far out of it. And then I do remember, I was kind of standing about the 15 meter mark near the finish. And Frank Bush, my good friend, is with me. And I remember at 15 meters, Frank grabs my arm and starts squeezing it because you could tell at 15, he was actually maybe getting it. And so for the last 15, we were kind of enjoying it because he was catching him. And it was just nuts when it, it was over. I mean, it was kind of like, wow. I, I do remember thinking after that, I was like, well, maybe this could happen. Because I had always, I had always told Michael, I was like, look, we got to be 100% prepared and we have to be a little bit lucky. And there was it. I also thought, wow, we used up all the luck we'll ever have. So we better be good from now on out, which we ended up still getting a little bit lucky. But yeah, it was crazy, that relay. What is the best race he's ever swam? The best race he's ever swam was the 200 free in Beijing. He would say that too. We just had this thing, you know, NBC showing all these races, right? In the COVID time, as kind of like as a family, which was surreal in itself to sit there and watch these races. And Michael and I are analyzing them stroke for stroke. And in the meantime, Boomer's coming by and climbing all over me and trying to run this truck over me. It's just like crazy to even think that we could be having that. But we both would agree that's a technically flawless race and probably his most dominant race, really, by far. What is your favorite memory? That is so hard to answer. Um, probably my favorite Olympic memory is Michael's first gold medal in Athens. When he came back from that you know, medal ceremony, you have never seen somebody so purely joyful, right? And we both were. It was our, both our first ones, right? It was like, wow, it actually happened. All this time we've been saying it could, and this and that and the other. And I just remember both of us just like smiling nonstop and just how happy and joyful he was. You know, once Michael starts winning all these medals, you don't realize how hard it is to win one, much less 23. And so that first one was just like such a nice way to kick that off, I guess. We had no idea how it would end up, but that's probably my favorite memory. And then I'm sure now you love getting run over by trucks by oh, his kids. Yeah, and- awesome. The best. The be- I was swimming with Boomer yesterday and I was like, this is, I don't want to ever tell Michael, but God, this is just as good as those medals <laughs> in a different way, right? But like to see a kid and, you know, Boomer, um, somebody asked me the other day, you know, about COVID and they're like, I did a talk about how you train, right? And they're like, are you worried that your swimmers will lose their feel for the water? And I was like, well, no, because they either have it or they don't, right? Boomer has great feel for the water, but I didn't train it into him. We know how he got it. So it's amazing to see him kind of move through the water. You can see some little flashes of uh, his genetic potential, right? It's kind of crazy. That actually is really crazy at that age that you can see that. He, he did a dolphin kick yesterday. Like I'm trying to get him to learn the motion. We call it a body dolphin. So he had both his hands by his side and he just moves his body, you know, through the water like a dolphin. And it's as good as any of my college kids when he kind of just starts doing it. It's crazy. It's kind of wow. crazy. That is. <laughs> I'm not going to push him hard on it, but just <laughs> that he can do it. It's crazy. All right. In 10 years, we'll, we'll recap on this conversation. Yeah, exactly. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll revisit. So let's switch gears and talk about cooking because this is something that we have bonded over the years about. When did that become something that you took up as a rather serious hobby? I was thinking about it today. It's kind of funny. It's when I was at Michigan. 
I lived by myself at Michigan. I didn't know anybody when I got there, right? So I would kind of go home at night and I would flip through the channels and 30 minute meals, Rachel Ray was always on when I got home. So I would usually eat dinner, whatever pizza or whatever I had bought for dinner, right? And I would watch her do these. And it was kind of relaxing just to watch, you know, the cook show. And after a while, I was like, you know, I can try that. So I started trying some stuff. And then I started branching out. And another show I started watching was Barefoot Contessa. And I kind of fell in love with Ina Garten just because she's like super smart and authentic and all these things. And all of her recipes work if you follow them, right? Because they're well tested. And so I just kind of branched out, started cooking, started cooking for people. It was a kind of a great way to sort of, you know, socialize. And I've just continued that since. So another part of your life that I know you've talked about cooking being kind of like a very routine part was after 2012, when you kind of take a step back from coaching, is that like just the lack of routine and like needing to have something to work towards or like goals to achieve? No, it's definitely part of it. And it's also just having time to do it, right? Like a lot of times when I get home at night after practice and I've had two practices and it's been a long day, you don't really feel like, okay, let's get the knives out and start chopping stuff, right? But when you have a little more time like now, perfect thing to do. Like, did you have a go-to dish that you would impress people with during this period or? I have a couple, like, you know, there's this guy on Instagram that's doing every one of Ina's dishes. Have you seen that? It's called store-bought is fine, right? And he's kind of a thing now. So he's, he's like on a thousand, I don't know how many dishes that he's like cooking. I have done a bunch. Like I have done a bunch of like episodes of Barefoot Contessa where I cook everything on the thing and make it a meal and serve it. So yeah, there are a few that I love. I, I love a thing she makes called pastizia, which is like a Greek lasagna. And if I serve that with a watermelon, arugula and feta salad, that's like a pretty impressive dinner. And I've done that many times, many times. Yeah, it has lamb and pork and beef. It's really good. And we both, before doing this podcast, we both made the bolognese to discuss, which I had never made hers. And that is now my lifelong, that's my bolognese. It's so simple, right? But great. But super good. I will tell you, I embellished it a little bit. When I do it now, I start it with an onion, which it doesn't call for. It just adds a little layer of flavor to it. And I like the texture of the adding onion. to I know, to Ina, right? I know. It's crazy. <laughs> But I did it the way she would do it, totally the way she would do it. And uh, I also, I couldn't find orichetti, so I used the penne. And I'm also going to be, I'm a little bit ashamed of this part. I didn't have the ratio of noodles to beef right because I would have had to use like a package and a half of noodles. I made a double because I served it to Michael's family, right? I served that on Sunday night to the family. And the kids love noodles and I just didn't want to waste that. So I just put them all in. So I had a little more penne than I would sauce, but it was amazing flavor. It's pretty awesome. Well, I made it for me and yeah. it will feed me for like two weeks. Exactly. Right. The good news about now is instead of me eating that every day for a week, I can just have one dinner and it was like, there was like six people there, six adults and two kids. Right. So that was good. You know, one thing funny about this episode I like to make it with a good wine, right? And I'm kind of getting into, well, I lived in Napa, so I have some wine contacts. Interestingly enough, a lot of the Olympic coaches, both Olympic coaches now, uh, Dave Durden and Greg Meehan are both wine people. They're in the Bay Area, right? 
you know, we actually had a Olympic head coach's wine tasting like a year ago where I was giving them advice about the Olympics, but we did it at Chimney Rock Winery, right? So it was awesome. But I wanted to get a good wine. So Ragushi is one that I really like. And I got this bottle out of my, I have a back cellar, <laughs> cellar. I have a back wine cooler kind of where I keep my good wine. So I pulled it out and I didn't pay attention. And when I opened it up, it was like a 2010. I was like, damn, I didn't really. So I made it with this really good wine, which actually helped. But it was like, oh, I'm not going to get to drink all this. I have to use two cups up. But it was fun. Okay, so obviously Ina, but who, yeah. who else do we like? Who else? What other recipes or cookbooks? I'm actually what I've another thing I've done during this time off is like a masterclass, right? I've been doing Thomas Keller, and I had the amazing good fortune to go to French Laundry last summer, which was unbelievable. Wow. That whole experience was crazy, and so he's been going through like the basic techniques of cooking. And how to do sauces. I've done the one on vegetables, pasta, and eggs, and meat, and sauces. And there's the third one that I'll do later. But like, I've picked up a ton from just those classes. Like, don't cook with olive oil. Cook with a clear oil that has a higher burning temperature. Olive oil should only be like an accompaniment, like a condiment, which makes sense to me. And also buy it in the smallest container possible. Buy your olive oil in the smallest container possible so it won't go bad because it goes bad quickly. Right. I did not know so, any of that. Yeah, there are a lot of good tips he's given me in that thing. And my mom is half is Italian. I'm half Italian and we just put olive oil on everything. So I didn't Well, I know, right? Yeah. It's and, and I get his point. I don't think I cook things at high enough temperatures where it ever burns. So it doesn't really bother me that much. But maybe in the commercial kitchens you're doing some stuff. But that's been really good. One thing that's been really funny also during quarantine is like cooking Twitter has been like, a, oh gosh, a, the Chrissy Teigen, Allison Roman, like it is, <laughs> I mean, again, everyone's home. So I understand now that like, you know, people who provide us with recipes, but where do we stand on this, Bob? I'm about it. You know, when I first, when we first were in the shutdown, I was baking like every day and also eating it every day. So I had to like calm that shit down. But, um, you know, so I, I'm I'm big time on. I think it's great. I think it's been wonderful. Like, you know, I don't always have the time to do that stuff for like, you know, my isolation is my house and Michael's house, right? So basically I get to go see the kids every day, every afternoon, and kind of hopefully, you know, lend a hand because there's no nannies during COVID. <laughs> so it's all hands on deck. But like, you know, I made these applesauce muffins with the caramel icing and took it in for them on Saturday. And everybody loves that. The kids like that. Mom likes it. She doesn't have to worry about too much stuff. And she probably thinks it's a little too much sugar. But, you know, that's what grandparents are for, right? It is nice that you have somewhere you can drop off all of your Exactly, right? And I can have a couple, <laughs> which is good, but I don't have a dozen. You know, that's when it used to be a problem. Yeah, as someone who has made like the most unhealthy version of banana bread multiple times during this and then just <laughs> right, right. ate it all yeah, myself. It's just there, right? You know, lunch, dinner, whatever, snack. Is there a like a white whale, like a, a dish or something that you would always want to make someday, but don't know if you can ever do it? Yeah, another, ma God, I'm doing these masterclasses. I did this French pastry masterclass, right? I would love to make a croissant, but I'm just like scared to try it. I don't know why, because I'm afraid that it's like so delicate. And so I'd like to do some stuff like that. Make my own puff pastry, do a croissant. That's probably the white whale. 
I'm not a good baker. I, I prefer cooking. See, I like baking because I'm like super rule bound, right? So if you do, you have to follow everything and I'm big on that. So it kind of speaks to me. I don't like to vary too much. Like those changes I made to Ina's recipe, like I had to make myself do that. I would usually not do, ever do that. <laughs> Spoken like a uh, swim cut here. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> X's and O's, follow the plan. That was our interview with Bob Bowman. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.